Assalamualaikum everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Isn't Mo Quarantine Though, the second season of Isn't Mo Muslim Though. Today we have Humna Tharik. She's a population health data scientist for UC San Diego Health. I actually know Humna from my childhood. Her family and my family are close family friends back in Houston. Um, and so I'm really excited to talk to her about the stuff that she's been doing over at UC San Diego and some of the data she's been seeing around the coronavirus. Uh, Humna, you want to tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, for sure. So I'm a population health data scientist. And um, when the we start first started hearing of cases emerging within the US, our team got on it right away to start building data models and projections of what the COVID-19 impact would look like for us. And so, you know, we've been working around the clock on weekdays, sometimes we're working 14 hour days to um, code up these data science models that one project how it's traveling. So it's like when it gets near your hospital, um, brace for impact. And then two, we're building a decision support model to help doctors um, understand what the trajectory of any one person's health looks like based on a cohort of patients that are similar to that one person. Gotcha. So for something like this, how do you guys, you know, model the data when something really like this hasn't happened uh, at the like scale of it? Right. So, I mean, I think it starts out with um, getting health information, getting PHI, protected health information from other entities. And we had to, I know the California CDC really fought with China's health ministry to get some of their data. Um, you know, we've, uh, we have uh, CDC data from cases documented here we worked with mm-hmm. other hospitals to get their data because, you know, first rule of statistics is if you want to achieve accuracy in, you know, studying any trend, your data set has to be big enough. Um, and then from there, we built something called a COVID-19 uh, registry. So in that registry, everyone who had, um, you know, contracted uh, COVID-19 went into that registry, their um, patient records. And then it's kind of, you know, it kind of gets convoluted from there on out. But uh, what ends up happening is you have um, thousands of thousands of people in this one registry. So the next person that walks into the door that's contracted COVID-19, well, they'll have a certain profile to them, right? Okay. So like, let's say, you know, your name is Bruce. Bruce is a 59-year-old male who's HIV positive. Um, he has a certain profile to him. Um, you know, he has a history of diabetes, all of these qualities about Bruce that are unique to Bruce. So then you would tap into the COVID-19 registry and try to find every patient that's like Bruce, who's also HIV positive, 59 years old, male, um, has a history of diabetes and other comorbidities. And then from there on out, we would, um, you know, create match rates. So we would say like 600 people have a match rate to Bruce, 400 people have like a 89% match rate to Bruce, 200 people have like, you know, a 78% match rate to Bruce. Mm -hmm. And we'll do this for each match rate, but focusing on the cohort with the highest match rate to Bruce. And then we'll kind of see what treatment paths were taken for them. You know, it'll if it says treatment path A had like the highest success rate, or but like a lower recovery rate. Um, you know, treatment path B had like a higher recovery rate, but you know, 
um, what, what have you, there's like different factors in each and doctors just have to make a decision accordingly. So. Okay. So then that really gives a, a lot of information to the doctor on how to help this specific patient just based off all the past patients that have come through so far. Exactly. That's why it's called a decision support model. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> and so for, are, are many of the hospitals like really receptive in tapping into these models? Like how easy was it to like get all these hospitals kind of signed on to like using this type of system? Um, in the beginning, it was kind of tough because if you've heard of what an EHR is, electronic health record. Yeah, the, I've read a lot about uh, like how difficult they are to kind of handle, like Epic, I believe is one of them. Um, so I've read a little bit about that. Yeah, they're, um, you know, different hospitals run on different EHRs and translating a patient record from an Epic system to a Cerner system can complicate things. So mm -hmm. that in and of itself is a huge challenge. So how do you standardize the data, right? And yeah. um, so it's just, you know, converting. I, I think I'm not sure what Evergreen Health up in Washington uh, runs on, but for some reason we had a hard time converting their data to, uh, to match the standard of ours. But, you know, we have these challenges that we have to um, kind of overcome in a short amount of time, given like the brevity of this situation. So mm -hmm. all of us data scientists and data analysts and other epidemiologists, we're just working 14 hour days now when we used to just work eight hour days and call it a, and just go home. Yeah, I mean, I can see why like you guys are having to put in all this extra time. But what are some of the trends that you're seeing around coronavirus specifically? What are what is some of the things that the data is telling you? Oh, you know, some of the data is very interesting. And sometimes we'll have meetings with the California CDC of certain things that's not being talked about in the media and our data model is kind of picking up because we've thought about this expansively. Like for example, um, you know, we were talking about access to healthcare, right? Mm -hmm. um, well, when you, once you overburden the healthcare system, you know, that puts everybody at risk of getting proper healthcare, right? Yeah. Cause a lot of people are getting their, you know, appointments canceled or rescheduled just because the hospital is focused on coronavirus. Right. And, um, and then a lot of the times what ends up happening is, um, you'll see a, the data models kind of indicating this, but I can't say it's a solid fact. There seems to be a racial disparity in, and, uh, economic disparity mm -hmm. the model shows that it says it basically shows that while the virus will spread indiscriminately, you'll see a disparity in the death toll. So, you know, you want Based off like the economic or the socioeconomic background of the person. Exactly. So, you, I mean, it all has to do with access to healthcare, right? It kind of just ties back into that. You wouldn't expect someone who falls extremely ill, who doesn't have a health insurance to um, get immediate attention in the hospital. You know? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think even like around the people I know who have, you know, solid jobs, who have health insurance, the concern is still like, okay, do I go get tested or do I wait till like I'm you know, really coughing and stuff and then get tested. Like at what point, just because once again, we don't know how much it's going to cost. Like it's still a factor that people are worried about. And that just holds back, you know, the whole system from really figuring out what the extent of the damage is. Right. And, and I mean, you're completely right on that. And also it's just, you have to understand where um, people who have underlying conditions under which populations are those the most prevalent, right? Um, mm -hmm. a, a good example is, you know, diabetes. Um, a lot of people think diabetes is very, very common. It is. It's common amongst all demographics, right? 
Yeah. But we see it rampantly common amongst people who live in poverty, which is, you know, a very non-intuitive fact because, you know, when people think of poverty, they think of skinny, malnutrition. They think of, mm-hmm. um, you know, some, children in Somalia, you know, but, but it's America- really it's like food deserts and processed food. Yeah, food deserts and processed foods because the huge difference is in America, there is a food availability for everybody. Um, but the impoverished have low quality foods available to them. So then diabetes just kind of runs more rampant in them because they don't really have that option for healthier food at a price point where they can afford it. Exactly. Well, I mean, it's not even just a price point because if what if you look at what a food desert is, it's in low income area in which you live in, which most People do not have a car and, you know, supermarkets like Walmart or H-E-B or um, I'm sure H-E-B is just a Texas thing. So I'm not sure if all your (laughs) podcast listeners will know what that is, but um, they won't open up in these areas because it's not economically convenient for them. But Mm -hmm. places that will open up in food deserts are fast food chains or corner stores like 7-Eleven, right? And, you know, you wouldn't expect a low income household to walk five miles to the nearest supermarket to get groceries. Um, Yeah, I think definitely in Chicago, there's a really big problem with food deserts. mm -hmm. And a lot of the people just rely on like the local corner store and stuff, which when you go into there is no fresh food, it's just, you know, processed Mm -hmm. food or canned food. And so it does lend to that type of, you know, health or lack of a healthy lifestyle. Right. And so, and food deserts is just one example that we'll see how this impacts us in terms of a pandemic. There are so many external factors that a lot of people haven't thought about of how this is going to cause, uh, how our structural disparities will translate into this pandemic, if that makes sense. No, it definitely does. And so for you as, you know, a population health data scientist, are you able to do this work from home still, or are you still having to go into like the university? (laughs) I still have to go in um, because, you know, the data has such high security on it that um, it can only be accessed on the office's network. Um, Oh, okay. (laughs) But they're working on a VPN system. It's just, uh, and initially, I guess my organization was like, you know, there's, there's no need for that because we care more uh, about security than anything. Mm-hmm. And, um, but, you know, we've, we've come to a point where people who are dealing directly with PHI, like I don't deal with financial data. I deal with mm-hmm. direct PHI data. Um, they still have to come into the office, but the office is so empty now. We're all just uh, sitting in different quadrants of the office and we hardly ever see each other. <laughs> <laughs> And so for you, has it been like, in terms of impact social wise, have you just had to like cut down any interaction just because you're more exposed? I know for us, you know, until I started working from home, we were kind of wary about visiting even like my wife's in-laws just because it was like every day was fresh exposure for me. But now that I'm working from home and we've had like, you know, some days of like no exposure, it's like, okay, maybe we'll do the two weeks and then go visit. Well, you know, it's my days were already like, uh, you know, I just wake up, go to work and come back home. I'm not like I haven't been too social since I've moved to California. Um, mm. So it wasn't too hard of an adjustment as it is. It's <laughs> a longer. Um, but I like the point that you bring up because you you were, you know, in con- constant contact with people, your in-laws, and you hadn't you weren't aware of where they had been. Right. 
And yeah, because I mean, it was like we don't know when they're going out. Because I know my father-in-law, he still has to go into work. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I was on the train and stuff, so it was just like you know, what le levels of exposure am I getting? And it's like, how safe do we feel? You know, how many days of self-isolation should we do? It's like so uncertain. Exactly. But what your in-laws were doing that for our data model, we would be calling that um, random movement. So random movement meaning? Random movement, I think it'll be better explained once I ex explain the contrast first. So there's something called routine movement, which is what I was doing, right? I wake up mm -hmm. every day in the morning, I straight up get in my car, I go to work, I don't really see anybody, and then I come back home. I don't come in contact yeah. with, with anybody when I'm in routine movement, right? But once you start getting in random movement and you're just randomly going about your day and you don't have like a set routine and you're interacting with different people every day and those people are also in random movement, then you're at higher risk of contracting the virus because you simply can't track it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially because like my in-laws, um, you know, they're very involved with the local Muslim community. Mm -hmm. And, you know, our local uh, Muslim was actually pretty proactive in kind of shutting, like canceling Jummah and then shutting down even the daily Salah. But it was like until the Muslim did that, they were still going and stuff. Um, so, yeah, they had a little bit more, you know, movement around and exposure. Um, mm -hmm. So it was still very uncertain of, you know, who has it, who's been exposed, are we exposing it to each other? Um How's that been in terms of your guys' community? How was the reaction from the local Majid community? Like, did people shut down pretty quickly or was it some stayed open? You know, California has been very good about it, even in the Muslim community here. They were very proactive. As soon as everyone started saying, oh, this is a serious threat, like we shouldn't be taking this lightly. Um, because, you know, there are some communities, I've, people have told me stories in different states that no one's taking this seriously. Well, why are you, why are you guys sounding the alarms? I was like, well, we're on the coast. We're going to get affected first. We're the ones who took in those quarantine passengers from those cruise ships. So we know how hard we're about to get hit. Um, yeah, all the people I know in California, it's, it's been like, you know, <laughs> what they're going through. It's like, we're going to get that to that point. It's like, now we have, right? Like Illinois did a stay at home place order like yesterday, mm -hmm. but it was like, California has been under that type of order for a while already. Yeah, for sure. And then, um, so the community kind of like was prepared for the impact of it. So already I saw like, you know, email lists going out. If you're a young person, you know, if you can do grocery errands for the elderly and the immunosuppressed, there was, you know, um, an effort of people who had extra PPE gear in their house just for whatever reason to donate it, um, which I think is very strange, by the way, if anybody says <laughs> that. But, you know, there was like this huge, uh, you know, a, a community effort from all masjids across San Diego. And I was like, wow, like this is this is great. Um and then on the contrast from the community that we're from, everyone was just telling me like, we're not, we're not in a good place. No one's taking it seriously. Yeah, no, I think definitely uh, where we're from in Houston, there's IGH. They, they canceled, I think last week, like across all the mudges, but there's still a few mudges that were still open. Um, and, and I think that's how it is in a lot of communities. Unfortunately, even in Chicagoland, there are some that only canceled Juma like yesterday. Mm -hmm. uh, and they only canceled the daily prayers because the state ordered them like order to stay at home in place order uh, and it's because a lot of people were just kind of I think even after they informed they were saying things like I remember getting a message that was like oh if you you know if you know the power of prayer come to Jummah at our masjid it's like why, why are you trying to be so morally superior like that like there's no need for that like we're all just trying to care about the community right 
Right. And, I, you know, I'm sure, like, it's the same thing. It's kind of equivalent to when someone says, oh, just pray that you'll do well on a test. Well, you also have to study, right? Yeah. So you have to do the effort. You can't just pray a pandemic away. You have to do your due diligence. You've got to do your part uh, in society, so... Yeah, exactly. Like we have trust in Allah, so but I mean, you still got to tie the camel. And it's like, I think a lot of people are just kind of forgetting that part. It's like, hey, we're not doing this because we want to. It's not like we want to shut down the masjid. We just care about the community and we're trying to do our best, right? Mm-hmm. I think what's very fascinating is the amount of elderly people who haven't taken it seriously. Oh, definitely not. Especially, I think, in the immigrant community, like the parents just don't care. They're like, nah, it's whatever. There's just too much people like going like, eh, it's just like, you know, crazy. It's like, it's fine for me to go out. Let me go to the masjid and stuff. And it's like having to sit down and be like, no, please stop. You're endangering yourself. <laughs> no, for sure. I had to, you know, take a, take some frustration out on some of my family members, too, who weren't listening. And I was like, look, there's something that I can see that, that alhamdulillah, that no one else has the advantage of. I can peer into next week and no one knows what next week looks like, but I do. I was like, you need mm. to go home. And then they were like, okay, okay, fine or whatever. And then, you know, things started happening and the news started ramping up and they were like, Oh, okay. We know what you were talking about. So, yeah, I think it's, it's really wild. Like until like something happens like in their community and like their backyard, a lot of people won't take it seriously. Like it's not until people have been getting like infected at the local masjids that some people in those communities were like, oh, okay, yeah, we should shut down the masjid. It's like, yeah, they were there. They exposed everyone. Um, so it's like until they kind of see it in front of them, they just won't even listen. I think it's kind of also like this attitude that people just generally have. And I don't know if there's like a word in psychology for it, but it's this notion that bad things can't happen to me. Bad things only happen to other people. Mm-hmm. But I'm just like, well, you're other people to somebody else too, right? Yeah, no, definitely. I think that that was like, I was kind of in that state at first. Um, mm-hmm. Even though like, you know, my wife and I, we knew like how serious it was. Like I was kind of in that denial up until a point when like, this was like last week, we were trying to visit Houston over the weekend for, you know, to see family and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until like Friday when Trump had declared a national emergency that like I canceled my flight, like I canceled my flight like two hours before the flight. Mm. Um, (laughs) But it was just like, for some reason, like it was me just wanting to like see family. That was kind of like blinding me. I was just like, okay, no, no, like let's just go to Houston over the weekend and we'll get back before it gets worse. Like, it's okay. Like this will be fine. We'll go to the rodeo. Like I was still trying to go to the rodeo even, but (laughs) then like, you know, the rodeo canceled, everyone started getting shut down. I was like, okay, okay this is serious like we'll cancel a flight and stay in you know chicago well my friend you made the right decision so (laughs) and you know it's weird because everyone was last week initially just telling me all these stories about their plans i mean there was a ton of weddings um over the and that was beyond infuriating for so many people and and um, and I'm sitting at work looking through my Instagram and I'm like, there's like five weddings on this weekend. When we see in the news where, that we're going on a lockdown, schools are closing, but ha- somehow weddings aren't getting the memo. <laughs> <laughs> no, people like people wanted to have their wedding no matter what. Like I know some people who only canceled because the hall canceled on them because the government was like, yeah, no gatherings over like 50 people. So the hall was like, yeah, we're going to cancel. And then that was like, it was like two days before. And people were like, oh, okay, then we'll cancel the wedding like yeah you should have canceled it a while ago <laughs> for sure i mean some of them still happen though um yeah that's interesting oh, a shocking amount <laughs> <laughs> that's not too shocking not with the people we know 
So no, I was going to ask you more about being a population health data scientist. How's that been, you know, aside from the whole corona epidemic, like how did you get into this field? What drove you into like joining this field and taking this, like getting into this type of work? Right. Of course, that's a great question. So when I was doing my bachelor's at University of Texas, um, I got this research position by by just chance. And it was very a uh, weird transformation because I entered um, the university thinking about I'm going to be an engineer. And then I came out doing something completely different. Um, <laughs> so I got a research position under the School of Human Ecology and under the Department of Epidemiology. So we started doing epidemiological research. And when mm. I heard about, oh, this is how NHANE surveys are uh, conducted. This is how we collect health data from across the U.S. And we try to gauge like these demographic disparities, which my first re- research study was on food deserts, by the way. Oh, really? That's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was like, wow, this is so interesting. So, um, and then, you know, once I graduated, I was like, I think this is, I need a master's degree in what I did research in my undergrad. So I went off and moved to Arizona, um, got a master's degree in health informatics. And then right after I was done, I moved out to California and started working at Scripps Health. Um, And then from there, I just changed my job. And now I work at UCSD Health. Dang, so from Texas to Arizona to Cali, you just kept moving west. You're like, man, this weather's getting better and better. Oh, no. Well, you know, I would not recommend Arizona. That was beyond... (laughs) I have, Were you in Phoenix? I was in Phoenix. I, as a brown oh, person, man. got sunburned. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was like, this is a whole new experience. I remember in uh, 2014, yeah, I was at an internship in Dallas, and they actually sent me to Phoenix for two weeks, but those two weeks was during Ramadan, and mm-hmm. it was in the middle of summer, and it was like the hardest thing I'd ever done just because the heat was unbearable. And this was coming from someone who like grew up in Houston. I was like this, I don't know how you guys live here. I, I just don't understand. We both grew up in Houston. And I was like, this heat is on another level. <laughs> I remember I went to Eid prayer in Phoenix and I saw this man crossing the, um, crossing the street with his chuppels on his rubber chuppels literally melted onto the black. Oh my God. <laughs> he had a hot potato across the street. That's literally it. Yeah. Like, Phoenix is wild. I don't know how civilization sprung up there, but so then, so now you're working at UC San Diego. What are some uh, interesting, you know, data modeling that you've done that has really stood out to you? Oh, that's a really good question. So some of the data modeling, which I think is also very relevant to what's going on today is something called hospital volume throughput, Mm -hmm. which is just like, um, you know, you have, you have patients that show up in the lobby. Okay, great. And then, so that's your input you know, the patients that show up and then your output is the patients who get discharged, right? Your throughput is everything in between. So we're talking about how many ICU beds do you have available, ventilators, all of those things. So we Mm -hmm. were lucky enough that we had this data model already built out when this, you know, uh, pandemic emerged initially. So we were like, okay, well, we're prepared there. We don't have to think about that. Um, But, you know, some of other, some of the other data models that we've worked on, not related to COVID at all, were um, the opioid epidemic uh, data model, which is trying to predict um, which doctors are prone to overprescribing opioids and which oh, wow, okay. which patients are prone to abusing opioids. Mm-hmm. So it would be like, you know, your denominator might be like, um, 
the number of days uh, an opioid was prescribed for, let's say 30 days, right? And then your numerator would be, you know, days since the prescription, you know, was uh, given um, in which the patient called back in asking for a refill, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say you were prescribed a prescription for 30 days, but you called like 17 days later. Okay, yeah. So it's like kind of showing that I'm abusing it. It's abusing it. Yeah. So it does the fraction and then, you know, shows it, okay, this patient is prone to opioid abuse. So put them in the opioid registry. Mm-hmm. Right. Was And then you said you were looking at also doctors who may overprescribe. Was that something that, you know, hospitals or doctor networks were kind of receptive to, or are they just like, no, you're targeting our doctors and stuff like we don't want to look at that? Well, we're a unique case, right? I mean, our doctors are graded on performance. So we have to grade them no matter what. Our mm-hmm. our doctors have been wonderful. I haven't found a single one that's been like um, prone to overprescribing. Well, and not a pay for service model. Um, so, like for example, there's a lot of hospitals out there, you know, who get paid just for providing service. It's simple yeah. as that, right? And some hospitals have converted to a pay for performance, which is a hit or a miss. It's a huge risk to take for a hospital to do. So, you know, if you if you fail, you fail so immensely that, you know, I mean, your hospital could end up closing, right? But if you succeed, your hospital probably ends up making more money than the pay for service model hospitals, right? Oh, okay, okay. I see what you're saying. And so um, when we do a, because our hospital is on a pay for performance model, um, you know, our doctors have to be graded on the daily and reported to the state of California. Right. And if California sees, okay, you're doing pretty well, uh, CMS, which is Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services, will be very generous in their reimbursements. Oh, interesting. So in terms of, you know, going back to when you were saying estimating hospital throughput uh, volume, um, one of the things that I was thinking, like, would that also kind of explain, like, does that help hospitals? give out like waiting times like i know a lot of times uh they'll be like oh your appointment's at 3 30 but please come by like 2 30 like an hour before is that because of like their throughput yeah exactly you're very so much so on the mark um you know sometimes you know surgeries may get rescheduled things like that i mean we have hospital throughput volume in different senses but it matters most in the inpatient setting right um so i'll give you an example you can Use the odd if you go into an urgent care clinic or if you go into an emergency department, that's an outpatient setting. Anything where mm-hmm. you're not hospitalized is outpatient. It's not inpatient, okay. right? And then they discover like, you know, something that requires a hospitalization. Then your encounter, we call them encounters, then your encounter at the um, emergency department is converted from outpatient to inpatient in your hospital, right? Mm-hmm. And so any event can trigger, a, you know, a high throughput volume, which will overburden the hospital. And that's kind of the scenario where we don't want to end up in, because the first place that people are going to go to in this uh, pandemic is either urgent care or the emergency department. And so then for in terms of your guys's data model, is it has it just kind of been like red for coronavirus? Like, yeah, everyone's going to be overloaded? Pretty much. Our hospital is doing well right now, but we already see that our resources are being allocated to this. 
So it's like we're kind of, you know, um, reallocating the throughput we would have had for labor and deliveries or, um, you know, just like protective uh, equipment, stuff like that. Um, or, you know, we, any type of surgery or whatever, like all our resources are being allocated towards this one place. And we are kind of seeing a depletion in other um, specialties. And so in terms of like timeline, how long do you think that will last for uh, a given hospital of, you know, like a decent size? Like how long do you think that throughput like uh, overload will last given the current like numbers? Well, you know, California, I would say, even though this measure looks extreme to some people, is a actually pretty moderate <laughs> measure. Um, so we're going to, we anticipate going above the, um, you know, the peak where we're probably going to be overburdened at some point. We're kind of going towards that climax right now. We don't know mm-hmm. what it looks like just yet. Um, because we're still in that, you know, two week incubation period and next week we'll, we'll, we'll have a surge of people who will be like, I have it. And then, you know, it's also ramping up testing as well. So it's a couple gotcha. of challenges in answering that question. <laughs> no, that definitely makes sense. How's the, how's California looking at in terms of numbers of tests? Are you guys having a lot of availability or is it more of like a lot of screening before they test anyone? It's a lot of screening. Uh, so for, first thing they'll do is test for the flu. So if you fail that test, then there'll be the coronavirus test. Um, oh, okay. But, you know. Because I'm guessing the flu test is uh, like more easily available. It's more easily available, but also the flu is also common. So, mm-hmm. you know, we want to rule that possibility out before wasting a test on somebody when we're already limited in availability. Yeah, that makes sense. Like my mom, she came back from Pakistan recently and she like, she said she just only had allergies, but we all convinced her to like try to go get tested. But in Houston, they're like, yeah, you don't show enough symptoms to get tested. So it was just like, yeah, screen it through. Even though she like came traveling internationally, they're like, that's not one of the countries that was on the list. Like if she had come from Italy, they would have tested her. But it was just like, no, you're fine right now. Or mm-hmm. at least you're not going to be tested. For sure. Well, I mean, they took the proper protocol. If, if there's mm-hmm. a shortage, this is typically what they would do. Yeah. Have you guys, uh, has anyone started doing like data modeling, how fast, like the test will kind of, uh, in terms of availability, how fast will we get more tests and like, when will we be at a point where we won't have a shortage? Um, you know, we're, uh, I, I don't want to sound hopeless, but America is uniquely screwed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what I've just been reading. So I didn't know if that was really what's all, what it's all about. And a lot of people have asked me questions about testing. And they were like, why? Why are we sh- uh, short on testing? How come China has testing? And I'm like, South Korea. I was like, well, first of all, America is a tertiary country. So our main generation of wealth is through, um, you know, services like Facebook or this podcast, right? Yeah. We, we're not a manufacturing superpower like China. So mm-hmm. they're the ones who are manufacturing all this PPE equipment. And we have to rely on them to get it, right? We don't yeah. do these things in the United States. Um, and so, and imagine a country that's kind of on its own, uh, already on its own dealing with its own crisis. And it kind of has tapered off for them, but th- they're in a crisis. I don't think we're their first priority. So, Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense, especially because even if like, once it starts tapering off for them in terms of like the crisis, like ramping back up manufacturing to those levels is going to take a while. Oh, for sure. For sure. 
Um, but you know, it's, it's also one of those things where it's just like, um, they're thinking about, I think I heard it in the news where companies are kind of uh, coalescing to, um, produce, um, PPE equipment here, whether it be like, you know, N95 masks or ventilators. Um, I even read in the news, like Elon Musk is trying to like get on that in partnership with other California companies. Yeah. If only he would stop like spreading misinformation on Twitter, like, (laughs) I don't know, man, that guy like (laughs) tells everyone that it's not a panic. It's not anything bad. Just don't worry about it. And then at the same time, he's like, yeah, my factory will make some masks and stuff. Like, I don't know what you're doing, man. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's kind of, well, at least in a way he's like ethical, right? Like he's still trying to like keep everybody calm and find a solution. (laughs) We have senators here who were like freaked out in like briefing rooms about this coronavirus and dumped their stocks. And then went out in front of the world and said, everything's going to be fine. Yeah, those are just like insanely ridiculous. Like hopefully they get kicked out, but knowing our current system, they won't. Yeah, especially this one of them was from here. She was a Democrat, Senator Dianne Feinstein. She's a Calvinist. Oh, was she also implicated? Yeah, and she did that too. Um, so. Of course, you know, the media usually only focuses on the other side. So sometimes you miss a lot of that. <laughs> For sure. I mean, I think being a corporate politician, it does not discriminate if you're a Democrat or Republican. They're all kind of very doing true. the same thing. Very, very true. Is there any kind of other data that you guys have been modeling that you'd want to tell the audience about? Yeah, there's a um, geographic data model that we've been working on. And what that does, it attempts to track the movement of someone who's confirmed to have coronavirus. And we've gone about a very complicated way of doing it because we simply cannot rely on, oh, what's the trend when, you know, a school closes? Like, what what does that entail? What's the trend when you still have grocery stores open, right? It's too um, vague to track any of, like, it's too vague to track the movement of the population as a whole, right? Mm -hmm. So we... Yeah, because I mean, like, there's so much, like, I would say variance right now with so many things happening at one time and things kind of falling out of routine. Right. Mm-hmm. So what we've done is we've um, come up with a way where we can track people's move- movements if they've left their location services on their cell phone on, like if it's still mm-hmm. on, we can, we can track where you've been. And every, um, every uh, GPS has a GPS ID. People just don't know it because you know, yeah, when the satellite picks up signals from your cell phone, that in and of itself, that signal has an ID. And mm-hmm. so we've been translating that into our data model. And so on a map, all we see is a bunch of little dots. We don't know who they are unless we have a GPS ID. And so every time a patient comes in and they have, um, they've been uh, tested positive for coronavirus, we ask them, can we access your GPS ID? And then they sign a bunch of oh. things. And then, um, from there, we can trace which other cell phones they've been in contact with and where we can predict uh, there will be, um, you know, clusters or super clusters of coronavirus uh, emerging. Oh, wow. That makes a lot. Of, uh, yeah, I was about to say, you can just like look at my Google history. Like they track all my location. I give up all that. But... Yeah. Um, so you're saying so like, so when someone comes with Corona, then you guys like kind of get that information from them if they allow it. And then you're able to kind of predict where the next like clusters of outbreaks might happen. Right. So, I mean, what we do is first we go back in time and see where their cell phone's been. Right. Mm. And then from there we project forward. 
Okay, cool, cool. Yeah. So has that been really helpful like in terms of like California for them kind of like to capture a lot of what's been going on? Oh, it's been super helpful. Um, I'm sure you saw on the news when Governor Gavin Newsom was like, okay, we're going on a lockdown. Um, mm-hmm. And several counties and several hospitals handed in their data models. One of those data models was ours. Um, oh, okay. So... So that kind of like helped influence his decision on like, hey, we need to shut everything down. Yeah, because the projections were showing, oh, we're in a much scarier state than we think we are. Like we're going to have um, clusters across the state. And then we, we're also going to have super clusters, which is just a bunch of tiny clusters together. Right. Mm. So, yeah, because I mean, like this is kind of one of the at our local Maja, someone test, tested positive. Like so they like 11 days ago, they had it or they were tested like positive for it. And they were saying that 11 days ago, they came to the masjid, they played basketball, right? They, you know, praised a lot. And so then that was like one masjid. Then another masjid, once again, there was another positive case. And they're like, this person who was positive visited the masjid on this day. And so it's like both those people right now, everyone's kind of like trying to figure out where their clusters were. Cause everyone was like, you know, my uh, brother-in-law was talking with his friends was like, Hey, were you at the game that day? Or like, did you play with him? Like, okay, then did you come hang out with us? Like they're all trying to track on their own, like where that person has been and like create their own like data model. Um, just cause everyone's really freaked out. But like, Hey, how far did that spread? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's definitely a scary situation. I mean, we, I'm starting to personally know people here in California who have it. And so I think that's when it's going to really start hitting home for people when they'll know that this disease at a maximum will be two degree, two degrees of separation away from them. And now what that means is like, you know, um, you know, I know you, Ziad, but I don't know your wife, right? So mm-hmm. he's two degrees of separation away from me, right? I know someone who knows someone, right? So when, and that's at a maximum, we'll, uh, that'll probably be what next week looks like. Everyone's going to have like a second degree separation from someone that has it? That's how much in close proximity we'll all be. It's already happened here in California. So I, we're, I know I'm already two degrees of separation away from somebody who has it. Yeah. And I mean, for me, it's just like my thinking always is because of the lack of testing, mm-hmm. that's the only reason it hasn't really gotten to first degree. Like, I feel like I know many people, probably me as well, like have come in contact, may even gotten it. But just because there's no testing, we don't really know how close it is. Mm-hmm. For sure. I mean, it's definitely like a scary thought, but that's just all the more reason why people should stay home. No, that's definitely true. So how's it been though working within this field, uh, like the population health data scientist field? How's that been, you know, how's it been for you uh, as a Muslim woman working in that field? That's a really great question. So, you know, um, it's, it's definitely weird because I work in a very male dominated environment. My boss is a woman, but pretty much everyone else on my team is a man. Um, and they're all in their thirties and I'm like the youngest one. And it's mm. when I initially, you know, came to this organization, I was like, I kind of feel like I have to make my place here. Right. I kind of have, yeah. to, like, you know, while everyone's polite, you make your best effort to, um, you know, say that, Hey, I know just as much as you guys and I deserve the amount of responsibility and respect as anybody else. And in a way it's very, um, subliminal, And it's not just in the workplace that I experience this um, constant feeling all the time where I have, even though I've earned my merits, I still have to like defend my merits. Mm -hmm. I remember like a couple of days ago, I got into, um, 
I got I got into a uh, discussion with somebody about uh, food deserts, and they completely dismissed my merits. They were just like, "Okay, great, you have a master's degree. Okay, great, like you work in population health." And I thought that's interesting because I, as a woman, constantly have to defend the merits that I've earned, but I don't really see that happening with men. Mm-hmm. Another example of this is, um, you know, I work with a lot of doctors, do- doctors across the board, where they're whether they work in oncology or if they're primary care uh, physicians, what have you. And, you know, there's a lot of female doctors and there's a lot of uh, male doctors. And one of my closest colleagues, her name is Dr. Amy Sitapati. And I asked Dr. Sitapati, I was like, I think it's very odd everyone calls you Amy in the workplace. She said to me, I think that's very odd too, because um, all the male doctors, their doctor, whatever the last name is, but for some reason, all the female doctors are still being called by their first names among their colleagues. Oh, that's really weird. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I think it's very, um, you know, subconscious. It's subliminal. No one means to do it, but it's there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, what's issue is you said that. And like, I know a local doctor in our community, everyone calls her by doctor, but they say doctor her first name. Mm-hmm. Whereas all the guys, it's still like doctor their last name. Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to say, no, is uh, also I've seen that you've been posting a lot on your story about the data modeling you've done, but you've also been posting a lot about the backlash. Do you think a lot of that backlash, like people saying, oh, you're just sounding the alarm for no reason is because you're a woman or are they just kind of more scared? I think it's because they don't want to be um, dinged for it. You know, I, a lot of the people who kind of came out uh, saying, you know, I posted something about, you know, all these weddings, like the selfishness rooted in that is like Mm -hmm. you still want to party and do all these things because you you feel like it won't affect you but it will yeah um and and they kind of they kind of know okay i i did this instead of owning up to it they were like you're just being an alarmist you're just you're being annoying and i said you know what's really annoying going out and infecting other people and jeopardizing other people's health that's very (laughs) annoying um, it really and that's what the thing is is like they just don't take it seriously because they want to have their fun but it's like you we know people who are infected and other people who may be infected and it's like we, it's just infuriating to see them go out there and still do this right and the first thing that these people will do to you know delegitimize anything that i have to date have to say is strip me of my merits um Mm-hmm. they'll say uh, okay great like you think you're a know-it-all because you work in this industry i was like it's because i work in this industry so whatever <laughs> i have to say has more weight than you do <laughs> i'm like i have access and the ability to project into the future i know what next week looks like you don't you live in a silo and that's okay yeah. it doesn't make me a better person than you it's just like everyone has their own specialties like you know you're an engineer there's I cannot debate with you about things about civil engineering that I do not know. Yeah. It's like you have the data in front of you telling you what's going to happen. Like what's maybe, you know, what's the crisis is going to unfold as, but for them, that's just like, Oh no, you're an alarmist. Pretty much. Yeah. And I think it kind of also has to do with being a woman, but yeah, it's hard to pin. I mean, I can, yeah, I can definitely see. That. I mean, I think that's something that where you're talking about having to like, was it, uh, debate your merits mm-hmm. i think that's always something another layer that you know women in the industry have to go through right whereas with men it's more of just debating the actual information just the topic uh for women a lot it's just like hey i have to debate my merits before i can even get to the topic and i've seen that a lot even within especially in the civil engineering industry there's a lot of male dominance and so you do have a lot more of that hey like 
where does she have like there's a lot been a lot more of like where's her credentials from and it's and not until like you know you've kind of gone through her credentials that a lot of guys take you know the woman presenter seriously or you know whatever is being said but i don't see that same thing with the guys it's just more of like oh yeah they're a guy let's get them in and let's get them like going and stuff i know and i think it's just true for a lot of male dominated industries across the board and you know i mean statistics show that women are kind of dominating these in- industries now like the the tide is shifting right there are now more mm-hmm. women in medical school than men so that means an yeah. entire generation will be more women doctors than men um women are also I- infiltrating you know all aspects of engineering um pretty much every you know stem profession across the board but even in that situation it's just like you know we have to be extraordinary to get the same level of recognition for a male be- and their mediocrity, if that makes sense. No, it definitely does. And I love how you said infiltrating the engineering field. <laughs> All right, well, Jazakallah Khair, Humna, for joining us. It was really illuminating to kind of see, you know, the data behind a lot of these models that I think all of us have been seeing on Twitter and stuff, um, and just kind of really getting a reality check of how bad this is going to be. But that, you know, if we stay inside, if we just kind of do what we can, that it will help out. Um, any last words for the audience? Yeah, for sure. Jazakallah so much for having me. And I, my last words would be to implore everyone to do their part in society, stay home, do their part to flatten the curve and just stay safe. Definitely. Jazakallah care. Um, as always, you can find me at ZBHOI and at IMMTCast. Uh, inshallah, we'll have another episode soon. Jazakallah care. Inshallah.